You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. Hey, I heard you needed inspiration. He's Ilana and friends with some revelations. Little known back to the day, every little thing's gonna be A-OK. Little known fact about my guest today, at 19, straight out of high school, she went to Broadway because she was cast in The Share Show. In 2023, just a few years later, she was nominated for a Tony Award for her astonishing performance as Lucille Frank in the Tony Award-winning revival of Parade. I am so honored and thrilled to have Michaela Diamond on the podcast. Welcome, Michaela. A-OK. Hey everyone, my guest today is Michaela Diamond. Michaela is a Tony-nominated actress currently starring on Broadway in the 2023 Tony Award-winning revival of a musical called Parade. She made her Broadway debut in The Share Show. She appears in the film Tick, Tick, Boom. She was in Jesus Christ Superstar Live. She's on The Gilded Age and up here. Her singular, extraordinary voice can be heard on cast recordings and in concerts all over the globe. She is a graduate of LaGuardia, the performing arts high school in New York City. And I'm such a fan of this um, integrity filled, gorgeous artist. And I've waited, as I said, in our preamble before we started recording for the right moment. And today seems to be the day. So thank you for being on the show. A lovely Tuesday. Thank you for having me. You're <laughs> welcome. Um, so much has happened to you so fast, um, or, or at least it seems that way to me, an old lady watching your career. <laughs> um, but I would love, before we get into Parade, this deeply felt, beautiful, painful, gorgeous production of Parade um, that you and Ben Platt just are crushing, um, <laughs> as the kids say. I, I do want to go back a little bit to like young Michaela and sort of who was in your house, where where were you born? Um, just kind of take me back a little bit to like before today. Before today. Yes. Um, 23 years ago, I was born in Margate, New Jersey, which is by the beach. We were about five blocks from the beach. So I was kind of a water kid. And um, 
and it was my mom and dad and my mom, my parents got a divorce when I was about seven. And it was kind of from that moment on my mom and I against the world. And I'm still incredibly close with my mom. And um, she's kind of like the perfect in between of like, she loves theater so, so much, but also has never had anything to do with it. (laughs) So she just kind of places me on stages that I've always wanted to be. The first one being in my living room in Margate, where we would invite all of our neighbors and friends to come watch me dance many, many times. This ended when I cracked my chin open once on the floor um, because I was dancing in socks and I've never made that mistake again. Um, That's a side note of a story, but I kind do of you have I, an adorable scar under I your chin. I do. Sure do. Sure. There you go. Can do. There and, you go. Um, <laughs> I actually cracked it open a few more times. And the, the doctor finally was like, you, if you do this again, like it's really not going to work. <laughs> like You need to stop cracking your chin open. Um, all to like, say, got it. Got <laughs> yeah, it. Exactly. No more, no more of that. Understood. I can take a note. So I hadn't done it um, a fourth time, uh, but all to say, I was a kind of an adventurous performer from the moment I popped out um, and l- deeply loved it and went to see Beauty and the Beast when I was probably eight or nine in New York on Broadway and was like, I'm going to do that, even though I had to leave it intermission because I was too scared of the beast. Um, and my mom believed me desperately. And uh, when I was 10, I did a community theater show in New York city with kids theater. And I played Marta in the sound of music and it um, changed my life. And we went back to Margate for seventh grade. And I said to my mom, um, maybe we should just up and leave and go to New York. And we did. And we left and my mom and I slept in the same bed for years and years in a studio apartment on the Upper East side. And I found my way to LaGuardia and, kept doing kids theater until I was 17 years old. And um, it was kind of like the most formative place to learn. And, you know, I, I just saw theater camp, the movie that Ben Platt and Noah Galvin and Molly and Nikki all wrote and directed and made. And they said at the beginning, we wanted to write this love letter to the places where people took us seriously for the first time. And kids theater was that place for me. And the teachers were kind of horrible sometimes to us and pushed us in these crazy ways. But I have to say it is like absolutely made me the actor that I am today. And I'm forever grateful to the, the, to the, to the, um, you know, the place that, uh, you know, was scary and hard and all the things. So that's kind of the, the childhood (laughs) story. Well, it's funny because if you live on the East coast, you know, that like, the distance between Margate, New Jersey, and Manhattan, New York City, USA, it's not like that many miles, really, in terms of like what it took to get here compared to like people who've come from much further places. But they could not be more different in terms of (laughs) lifestyle and environment. So talk about like, there's the idea of the thing, like, obviously, you dipped your toe in the water, you did a play in New York that summer, I don't know, were you commuting back and forth or did you guys do like a sublet for the summer? We did exactly a sublet. Yep. We had like a house for just July and August. And like, and figured out New York City in that time. So I'm a mom. Um, When I hear, I, I think your mom, and I've said this 1 million times, my podcast should be called 
like little known fact, Julie Platt is the most incredible mother on the planet. Like I feel like Ben's mom is also one of the most extraordinary parents to ever exist. And I just try to take a page out of her book when I don't know what to do as a mom. And so I now feel like, what is your mom's name? Karen. Karen is her last name Diamond as well. Okay. Like Karen Diamond, just the idea of this sort of, um, hey, do you, let's, okay, I'm game. Should we try this? I mean, A, it sounds like whatever she did professionally, there was some ability to translate that skill to another place to live or like, how did she actually do that? Like there's the romantic version of it. Totally. But, totally. but like, what is that really? It's actually a beautiful um, question because I think we did have a romantic version of what it would look like. Um, but my mom actually, when we were in Margate, the, the, the three years before we left for New York, she opened a dance studio for me. And the honest reason why she did this is because when my parents got divorced, she wanted to spend as much time with me as possible. And so she knew I loved to dance so much. And so she hired a bunch of teachers that she found and created this space where she could watch me and um, like, and, you know, watch me have fun and like kind of, uh, you know, find the happiness within some of the kind of turmoil that was at home. And um, that's in and of itself kind of incredible. (laughs) And then when we moved to New York, she was unemployed for over a year, which I think in New York, like really is an issue if you don't have, um, you know, a, a lot of savings and stuff. And we, I think we got real nervous for a second. And I remember being on a budget and, um, you know, I didn't get Starbucks when my friends got Starbucks and, you know, the little things that you kind of have to say no to for a little and then, um, you know, she was interviewing, trying to find a, a spot where she could, you know, be long term instead of finding a job within the first two months that she would probably hate after, um, you know, half a year. And she did. She found this place called CADS, which is a private preschool on the Upper East Side. And she manages the school there. And she's been there ever since. And she's going to end up retiring there in, in, you know, five years or something. And so um, the the kind of when we moved, New York was not great. I mean, I have to say I moved in the middle of seventh grade. It's like, not only were my like hormones a mess, but I was like, I think deeply sad and had no friends and all of a sudden didn't want to go on auditions. We had been commuting in and out for auditions before. And now all of a sudden we were like very close to them and I didn't want to go. I was scared. I was getting really anxious before them. And, um, and my mom never showed this kind of like, oh shit, we just moved and uprooted our whole lives. Now she may not want this, but I remember her kind of, we have had conversations now that I'm older. And she was like, I did, I was, I was frightened for a moment there because all of a sudden, you know, we weren't sure if either, what either of us wanted to do. Was the intention when you guys moved, so you're in middle school at the time. So that's pre LaGuardia high school. Mm -hmm. Um, was the intention for you to begin sort of this idea of being a professional actress and like, did you have an agent or what was sort of the idea 
I mean, this yeah. is a long time ago now. I, I mean, we don't have to get into the weeds about it, but I'm just curious because yeah. if, if I did move my family and my daughter was like, I'm going to be a professional actress. And then we moved and I don't have a job. And you're like, I'm not going to, I don't want to do it. Like, right. I, like that's so, it's also intense. Yeah. You know, my mom's loose plan was LaGuardia. We were a few years away, but you have to audition and live in New York at least a year before, because that's when the auditions happened. So we were actually quite close to auditioning. So I think LaGuardia was kind of the loose plan of it all. And Kids Theater was the plan, the harder plan, because we knew those people now. We had spent a summer with them. We loved the parents. We got close to some of the people in the cast. You know, I had mentors. So all of a sudden, I think it wasn't the professional actor of it all. I don't think I was ready to do that, nor did I really want to. I just wanted to be on stage and be taken seriously in it. And I think kids theater was the spot that we knew was, was there in New York. And so I think, no, my, my dream is to be a professional community theater actor, <laughs> if, if you will. <laughs> well, in some way you are, the community is just Broadway. That's the yeah. only difference <laughs> and beyond at this point. Um, there is uh, there is sort of a lot of talk out there about the fact, because it was like, oh my God, an actress doing something other than acting, um, just to touch on the pandemic for a minute, yeah. um, post you being babe in in babe share, um, yeah. and you getting this incredible Broadway debut at a very young age, um, but culinary school, right? Was that sort of, aside from having long talks with your mom, <laughs> cooking became this really like front and center thing in your life. Um, what do you think the the kind of similarities are if there are or maybe it was just expressing a whole other part of you between um the art of making food and the art of performing I think there are so many similarities between cooking and performing and like the more my life goes on the more I'm like oh my god there's another one um, I think part of it, and I say selfish, but I think I'm changing my mind when I say this, but as I, as I'm talking right now, but there is a selfish thing about it. That's like, there's immediate validation. So when you perform people clap and when you cook immediately, people like are like, mm, so good. Thank you for nourishing. Thank you for feeding me. It's like, it is a form of like love language. And I say selfish because like, I like that validation, obviously we're performers. We all like it, but I think it is also this, like, I think it, I think an audience is a relationship. I think that there is such a, a cycle there. It's like such a give and take. And the more I perform, the more I kind of am baffled and confused by an actor's relationship to the audience. Mm -hmm. um, partly because you know, I'm at this place where um, people can now have like a take on my art, which is interesting. Like, can you tell me what you mean? Yeah, this is so weird to say out loud, but there's a level of kind of fame where, you know, for example, I am obsessed with Florence Pugh, but she's at a level of fame where I have takes on her art, meaning opinions. Like I will love a certain movie she does. And I'm like, not her best work in a different one, but it's not, 
I'm not saying not her best work because I think Florence Pugh is bad. I'm saying not her best work because I fucking love Florence Pugh. And I feel like sometimes now that I'm doing, you know, a Tony winning revival on Broadway, people come to see it and like want to have an opinion on it. And I find that kind of fascinating and also scary mm-hmm. that I'm like in this like new level of yes. art. Um, and anyway, I, I guess the way I'm trying to connect these thoughts is that like when you have an audience and you're in something kind of beloved, I, and I, I think parade is beloved within the community. You never really know, but I think it is. And, I think that's um, a fair statement. Okay, good. Um, yes. There is, there is a, there is this relationship that you, you start to form with every individual audience. That's like, people are really receiving something and they can like it or not or whatever, but there's, there is a receiving that happens that I don't necessarily know if like people received share in the same way. <laughs> um, and I don't mean that share isn't art. I think that share so many people did receive share in like such fun connecting ways. But I think that parade is like just a different level of like, um, it's a personal, it's a much more personal level of receiving. Like you can feel, or at least I think I can feel the Jewish people in our audience when we light Shabbat candles. It's like, there's something holy around it. And I think that food is holy in a similar way. Like there's so many chapters of our lives and food like marks the chapters in my life in some way. And, um, you know, I started a supper club shortly after culinary school because what I found going to school was that like, I do love cooking and I love gathering deliberately and like sharing over something seasonal, some food that's been cooked, that's been labored over, that's been loved. And I think that supper club felt holy to me and felt like these, like I can remember the supper club when I broke up with my ex Uh and that supper club was healing in a way. And I think theater does that too. Like I remember when I saw the ferryman on Broadway and that was a healing play for me. Um, so I don't know, I guess to me, they're, they're both these like holy art forms that, um, like literally can heal people. And, um, I have loved dabbling in both. And, um, when I don't have one, because like you said, we can't quite control when we, (laughs) when we perform, um, I can't believe how lucky I am that I got to find the other thing that makes me feel, um, useful in the world. Okay. I have, my head is like, (laughs) first of all, like just even, I just want to go back because I think most people know your story, but I just want to share with listeners and you can really share it. It's your story to share, but right out of high school, very quickly out of high school. I mean, I have a 19 year old daughter in another room right now in this house as we speak. Right. And so I think about how you were shot out of a cannon being cast in the Cher show on Broadway. Stephanie J. Block played grown-up Cher and Teal Wicks, you know, and you 
formed the, the, the three share ensemble, as it were. For that to be your first show, that seemed like such a hard show, just what was expected of you. Because of the preconceived ideas every single person came into that room with, um, you are now sort of the number one lady on the call sheet, as it were, right? Mm-hmm. We have you and Ben leading the company. You had Stephanie J. Block leading that company. Talk about like what you learned, not as number one on the call sheet, in your very first Broadway show that you have brought into this show. Yeah. I mean, just to touch on what you were saying, I also find that so it's the magic of theater, the suspending of our disbelief. And um, I'll tie that into what I learned from Stephanie, which is that I feel like, first of all, she um, she's a mom and a wife and a daughter and a friend and takes those responsibilities so seriously and puts herself first in so many ways. And, um, that example to watch like as a young person and like, um, like a woman in our company putting herself first, I think was like incredibly formative in how I, I show up in rooms. Um, and she also just like, she walks into a room and says, I'd like to collaborate. And, um, placing like placing herself in that power position from the get is so amazing because she just won't be in a room with people who don't want to collaborate. And that's so cool. What a great ask. I think that's such a cool ask. Um, That is putting yourself first and knowing what rooms you will be great in. Um, And I think she was so great in this show in share and like, found such an immense power. And, you know, at the end of the day, Cher lives on another fucking planet and she's of a different universe. And I think that like figuring out how to step into her odd power was like really pivotal in making people believe us. And Stephanie really was the one to lead the way in terms of figuring that out. And I will say like, I think it took us every single day before we opened on Broadway to figure it out. Like it took every day in that lab. It took every day in Chicago. It took every day of rehearsal for Broadway before we were ready. Like it was not a perfect fit. I don't think for any of us. And that was a scary position to be in. But at the end of the day, once we believed it, so could the audience. And, um, you know, I think that's a valuable lesson as an actor. Like you can spiral a million times about like if people are going to believe you, but at the end of the day, like you have to, and that's kind of what matters. And, you know, Victoria Clark was, uh, we ran into each other who won the Tony this year, who is in my category. And we ran into each other in front of Schmackeries and she was like, how's it going? And I was like, I'm fucking spiraling. Like, this was like Tony nomination season. And I was like, I don't know what's happening. I just like, I, I am constantly worried if, if I'm likable and the audience likes me all of a sudden now that I'm nominated and I don't know why I'm so concerned with it all of a sudden. And she was like, you know, people are going to get it or people aren't. And that's the end of the story. Like, you have to get it. You know that you know you've done the work. You know what you're doing. And if somebody doesn't get it, they don't get it. 
And I think that was such actually great and perfect advice for where I was at in that moment. And Stephanie does that every day of her life. Like she, she has a lack of care for if other people are getting it. She knows her worth as an actor. And um, I think that's how I've tried to show up in parade is like, I think I know my worth to this piece. We did it at city center and people loved it. I can try and use that confidence and like start this Broadway run and like know, you know, that I and know that my chemistry with Ben is special and know that like I am not Carolee Carmelo and never will be and how I am different from her in unique ways because I loved Carolee. I wanted to be Carolee, you know, like I didn't want to. Is that why you bring her up like in terms of because of the original production and, and did you feel like, wait, do people remember that? And are they comparing her and me to each other or in your mind? Forget the audience. This was Michaela. Forget the audience. I loved that original soundtrack so much. And I showed up to rehearsal kind of sounding like Carolee because I had listened to it so many times. And Jason was like, you have to find your own voice you have to go as far away from Carolee as possible. And once I got that freedom, there was a part of me that, that um, believed myself more in this role because all of a sudden it was mine and I could put my stamp on it. And, you know, I think like, obviously all of our experiences compile and then that makes us the actor we are today. But like, I feel the same way about parade. Like I couldn't have done it a moment sooner. Like Stephanie, helped me with that. Jason helped me with that. Sky, my partner helped me with that. Like there's so many people in my life who like, I had to go through all these experiences in order to play Lucille and like make her the person she is today. But like now I believe it. And like, I have to have less care about what other people think and know my own worth in it. And that was something that Stephanie really kind of instilled, I think, in me. It's so funny because as I listen to you, I go like, is that, I mean, what you're saying to me is it can be learned, right? Like, like, I don't know if Stephanie, you know, I mean, Stephanie, who spent a tremendous amount of time in her, in her formative years, not on Broadway, but like at a theme park performing. That's right. Right. right? It did have to be learned. I think for sure. I think incredible. Yeah. Stephanie made her Broadway debut, I think at 29. Um, she, yeah, like she was a Disney princess in the amusement parks. Like right. she was doing the regional circuit for years. And through all that, there was obviously some part of her that knew that she was, you know, destined for more, which obviously she was. But I think when she got there, it is a constant reminder to yourself. You have to just keep reminding yourself, like, I'm meant to be here, you know, yeah. back to that kind of phrase. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know well, how you, I feel about it. <laughs> exactly. Or like, if it's meant to be, I like all of it, it goes back and forth. But I think about like, you had this in- incredible desire to tell stories through dance, you know, physically. And, and then obviously, like the idea that you were so devoted to dance, and then also realized that you could sing and, and have some relationship to your your vocal instrument as well like when did those two things come together for you um I was young but I remember 
my voice was like huge and I was a really small person. And I just remembered like the dichotomy of that was thrilling to me that I could be that loud and take up such power in a room, even though I was really small. Um, so I think that was it. And I, I mean, I still kind of feel that way today. Like when I think I, I love both. I love the feeling of like holding, like actually the other day I, um, we did, you don't know this man in the show, which is in the middle of act one. And it's a big song for you, for people who haven't yet heard it. Yeah. Big song, a little bit of a turning point. You're like understanding who this woman is um, and her, you know, the dichotomy of power that she's, she doesn't have, and she's trying to grasp. And, um, and I finished the last not line. I said, I have nothing more to say to you. It's sung. And then I walk away from the, the reporter into a kind of jail cell with Ben and every performance without fail, it's gotten applause after the button. And the other day, not one clap, like pin drop silence. And for a second, I was like feeling frustrated and went into the scene with Ben, like what just happened? And then when I got off stage, I was like, oh my gosh, that was actually like the coolest moment I've ever had on a Broadway stage. Like I just sang a huge song. I was the loudest I could be. It was at Fortissimo. And then I held every single person's heart to the point where not a single person in the entire theater wanted to make a sound. Like that to me is so crazy. Like I think the idea that I could hold applause for 1200 people was kind of like the greatest power I could have held in that moment. I don't know. I, I keep thinking about that moment and I can't decide whether to be offended or like really like, like my ego is like through the roof. No, 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 no. <laughs> but the idea, I mean, of course, always when you're used to a certain reaction, right? Yes. You get stage entrance and then applause. And then the next time you don't, they're like, I guess they're not happy to see me. It's right. like, it's like, um, it is so hard to explain the delicacy and and the it, it, it is impossible we have expectations and i think um having expectations is the thing that makes us work really hard but also it can kill us it is such minutia that can really throw you but the cost is sometimes equal to the great surprise that some audiences give you. So, you know, you just right. have to take the wins when they come. But I just love that you were like, you know, they didn't like it when actually, like, if you had been sitting in the off, like the audience, they'd be like, wait, can we wait one minute before we go on to the next scene? Because right, we right. literally <laughs> cannot breathe and we can't even handle what's happening next yet. But we've just watched the birth of Lucille Frank, right? It's like you give birth to yourself in this play. Like we start out in parade for those who haven't heard it or seen it, please go or get the, you know, cast recording. It's, it's about a, a, a person who's accused of a crime they didn't commit at a time where wives did not have a lot of power. And is it, what, what year does the show take place? If you can remind me. So it's 1913. Um, I did Alfred's play The Last Night of Ballyhoo. And so yeah. 
I too have been given the gift of talking to a person who has lived experience as a Jewish man in the South. I mean, when I found out Alfred Urie's episode is actually out today on the podcast. And when I know, you know, this, but for people to know, like his great uncle owned the pencil factory where Leo, I mean, talk about like a thread between storyteller and history. It is wild to me when I was like, how did you know about this story? And he's like, it's my family story. And And then I want to talk about with you the power for the first time of two Jewish people playing these Jewish roles in this musical that is so much um, among all all the things it's about. It is about anti-Semitism. And I wanted to ask you, because you did write an incredible op-ed in the New York Times that people can find about doing a show eight times a week that's painful and how you find the joy at the same time, or you go insane, I imagine. How do you find yourself each night as you walk to the th- into the theater going, okay, here I go again. Like, how do you will yourself toward the hard part of it? And what do you do for fun in this show? Yeah, I mean, you know that I will be honest and say that the op-ed started with the thesis being about how I get through the show eight times a week. And then it kind of, once, you know, we had a word count and we were trying to, you know, sparse it down, the thesis kind of shifted into this more um, kind of anti-Semitic theme and like what that is like doing for an audience and and stuff. But um, I miss some of the language of, of, of the joy of what it is like doing the show backstage. And I think sometimes in darker pieces backstage is even <laughs> it's like so the opposite and um you know there's so many there's a million things I could tell you right now I will like name three that are so fun to me one is like the trolley car sitcom as I like to call it which is when they're doing the the picture show which is in the, at the very beginning of act 1 the people on the train are essentially like doing a different show every night for everybody sitting on those benches, stage right and stage left. And the joy that that can bring is so fun. I mean, sometimes they're on drugs. Sometimes they're about to pass out. Sometimes they're celebrating pride secretly without the audience knowing. And they have stickers all over their suit. Like it's ridiculous. So there's things sometimes where we goof around on stage and then there are times backstage, like in This Is Not Over Yet, when we like start dancing backstage and do like horrendous harmonies, like ruin the song backstage. But it gives us such joy because we're, you know, just finding, you know, the the crazy amount of, of hope in our, in, you know, the story. Um, and then, you know, we have our stage managers, stage right, who like, will let me call sometimes and I'll like be able to call the glory and like change positions for a second. Um, So, you know, there are many, many things that we do backstage that keep it light. Um, But at the end of the day, I end the story in quite a hopeful place. Like all the wasted time is kind of our 11 o'clock number. And that is this love song between Leo Frank and Lucille Frank, where finally they see each other for who the other person is. And 
I think that singing those harmonies, singing that song every night is so wildly fulfilling that there, there is a level of disassociating once that song ends. And I think that disassociating maybe comes at a cost that I don't have the perspective to understand yet. But once that song is over, I try and live in that place. And then the rest of the show is like some dark part of my body that goes on stage and like learns that my husband, you know, has been lynched. And, and to me, that final, I have two verses in that final song where I have to sing before the big finale. And I've always felt since the rehearsal room that I am holding everyone's grief in the room. It is not mine in those verses. I say, Leo, oh, Leo, I know he'll protect you. But it's not just Leo. It's everybody who has lost someone and who has, you know, who has remembered a memory that they shared together of when, you know, the, the last line is and he's stroking my hair. And I don't see that as something sad. I see that as remembering the last moment of all the wasted time. It's when he's stroking my hair. It's this beautiful memory that I can keep, that I can remind someone of theirs. And that to me, that exchange, that holding is like a gift as an actor. It is not the burden. And so as hard as those last moments of our show are, they come from a real sense of privilege, a real sense of, um, of shared experience, of shared grief. And I think that is how I really get through it. I try and take that moment in. And then I have the whole finale to just, you know, we say the old red hills of home, but to me, home is the theater. So that is my moment to look out into the audience and thank them for that exchange to, um, the pride that those Georgians feel is the same pride I feel to be standing on that stage. So I can kind of, I can kind of turn a little into Michaela at that moment. I just feel so lucky that I am in the presence of you right now and in the presence of your incredible performances and all that is to come and, and what a moment for the theater and and what a moment for this show that you're in to not just, um, entertain us deeply, but to remind us that we cannot be complacent, right? That we must, we must be awake. Like this is a show about staying awake and, um, and love and you and Ben together. I mean, it's why all these, you know, why it's gone viral. There's something about the way you and Ben sing together. Um, We believe you, we believe in this couple and we want to have love like that. And it's a really, beautiful thing. And I'm so glad you have love in your real life and just (laughs) such a beautiful, beautiful moment to get to catch up with you. Um, I I just wanted to ask you something when you say supper club, like, is that something you curate? I mean, now you're in a show, I'm sure it's different, but when you mentioned your supper club, can you just in one sentence explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I call it Supper Courage. And my friend and I, my friend Erica Henningsen and I host and we invite 10 people, 10 different people every time. And there's a theme and we deliberately congregate over seasonal food and um, share kind of and toast to that to that month's theme. 
And do you ask, I love her, by the way, she's such a brilliant, brilliant artist. (laughs) Do you ask people to bring a dish or do you cook everything? I cook a three course meal every time. No one brings shit. (laughs) (laughs) My God. Okay. I'm just going to put that on my bucket list that someday (laughs) I get to be at Supper Courage. That's so brilliant. You're so brilliant. Of course. Of course you call it supper courage because you're a genius. Um, (laughs) All right, mother courage. Before I let you go, is there a little known fact about you that you can share? Yes. Well, you actually reminded me of this because at Williamstown Theater Festival, I did a show called Row and we did this show right after the pandemic. And so we did it on water. It was this like kind of immersive, weird thing at the museum and we were on water. And so it was really buggy. And I am deeply, deeply allergic to mosquitoes. So we would all like, we would all like maul ourselves in off and, and of various amounts of, (laughs) of bug spray. Oh, the deep you can have. And, um, and yet one day I received a bug bite the day before opening night and, um, it was on my eyelid and it blew up so much that it like ended up, uh, if you're listening, um, obviously you're all listening, there's no camera, but, um, I'm like circling my entire eye from like eyebrow down to like where my nose meet. I mean, it's like, it was so large and yet we were on the water. So we were kind of far away from the audience. So I was like, let's just do the show. It's going to be fine. And Bernie Telsey, who is a big casting director in New York and also, you know, has cast me in pretty much everything I've ever done. I owe my career to him. He texted me after and was like, you look battered. <laughs> and I've never forgotten that because I really did. Like it was so large, but if you ever see me with like a crazy, like crazy bug bite somewhere, it always happens. Like during tech week, I get a crazy one on my leg and like, can't stand on it. It's like, a, I'm so allergic to mosquitoes. So if I smell like deet around you, that's why. <laughs> that is your scent. That is your signature scent. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being on the podcast today. This was like pure joy. Yay. Thank you so much. Little known fact, now you can watch hours and hours of my interviews with your favorite artists as they talk about the art they love to make on YouTube. That's right. I have a YouTube channel. It's called Little Known Facts with Alana Levine. Catchy, right? Subscribe and enjoy. Little Known Fact, if you want to donate to the podcast, just go to littleknownfactspodcast.com forward slash donations. Thank you so much in advance for your generosity. Have a great day. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.